Good evening. My name is Alfred Lemon, and on behalf of the Board of Directors of the Kemper and Leela Williams Foundation and the staff of the Historic New Orleans Collection, Priscilla Lawrence, Director, and John Lawrence, Director of Museum Programs, I would like to welcome you to the first annual Bill Russell Lecture. When John and I were talking yesterday about the introduction, I said, this is wonderful because I have three people to introduce that need no introduction. Bill Russell, Jelly Roll Martin, and Michael White. However, we are fortunate today that we have some people here that we would like to introduce. First, Dr. Wagner, Mr. Russell's brother, who has been a tremendous friend of the collection since our acquiring the Bill Russell Collection, his niece, Lois Thornton, and his great-niece, Diana Thornton, who just recently completed work on Michael White's most recent CD, which he only saw tonight for the first time. <laughs> I'd also like to extend a special invitation or greeting to our friends from Sweden, from the Bunk Johnson Society, who have been tremendous friends of the collection over the past several years. Well, I think at this point, it's simply time to turn it over to Michael White, professor of Spanish at Xavier University, historian of New Orleans jazz, and performer. Thank you. Testing, is the mic okay? Great, good evening to everyone. All right. Tonight we're going to talk about Jelly Roll Morton. This is a centennial view of Jelly Roll Morton. As in other art forms, jazz has not been without its share of tragic hero figures. Individuals whose lives flash through our midst like gigantic lightning bolts passing out a thunderous brilliance that all too quickly seems to vanish into mere memory and the legacy that they leave behind. From the very first legend of jazz, Buddy Bolden, through Billie Holiday, Bix Beiderbecke, Charlie Parker, and many others, the common threads of poverty, isolation, loneliness, and artistic decline seem to be the most constant companions on a short road to a premature demise. Largely misunderstood by society at large, these individuals often see alienation from their peers in a musical subculture that is generally tolerant to eccentricities and exotic behavior. Too often, a failure to cope leads to self-destructive behaviors, many times by ingesting unhealthy substances. <laughs> but in the case of Ferdinand Jelly Roll Morton, among the most brilliant and tragic 20th century musical figures, many problems were also caused by opening his mouth. <laughs> Not to ingest abusive substances, but to talk and talk and talk. 
And what was most often the topic of his endless braggadocious dialogue? Himself. The history of ragtime, boogie-woogie, stride, and jazz piano is full of so-called professors who wandered around the country in fancy attire, bragging about their piano skills and ready to battle others in brilliant displays of dazzling technique, intense swing, and original compositions. Jelly Roll Morton seemingly outbragged everyone, not only about his <clears throat> superior piano skills, but also by claiming to be the creator of jazz, blues, and stomps. A couple of Jelly's typical statements were, for example, once Jelly once uh, told a musician whom he had hired, you know that you'll be working with the world's greatest jazz piano player, not one of the greatest, I am the greatest, <laughs> preceded Muhammad Ali there. <laughs> he had no problem walking to a club and telling the piano player, no matter who it was, get up from there, you don't know what you're doing. Let me show you how to play that thing. On the famous young swing era musicians of New York, who, were con who considered Jelly to be old fashioned and out of vogue in the 1930s, he would say things like, I'll put Duke Ellington in my right pants pocket and Fletcher Henderson in my left pocket. I'm the master, Jelly Roll. They're playing my music. Everything you hear Duke Ellington and Fletcher Henderson playing, if you listen close, you'll hear some of me in their music. And it was not uncommon for Jelly to lash insults at others, like, for example, I've got more suits than you've got handkerchiefs. <laughs> or, I've been further around the world than you've been around a teacup. <laughs> Needless to say, Morton's constant bragging, insults, and insistence that everyone was stealing his music were at the core of jealous, malicious, vocal attacks against him. Against him, against his piano playing, and his compositions. These attacks were leveled by numerous musicians, including highly respected greats like Willie the Lion Smith and Duke Ellington. But New Orleans reed man Paul Barnes, who toured and recorded with Morton in the late 20s, put the vocal side of Morton's character into perspective when he said, it's a pity some people didn't understand Jelly Roll. Some people even thought he was mean, but that wasn't true at all. When he'd brag and tell you how great he was, it was to bring a smile to your face. There's something that people don't understand, and that is that all musicians are comedians and entertainers. Well, most of them are. <laughs> Jelly Roll's Creole manner of joking was often misunderstood by musicians up north. If you understood him, you'd laugh. If not, you'd think he was self-conceited. But that would be the wrong idea about him. He never meant any harm, and he was very jolly and liked to joke and kid all the fellas in the band. Like saying, give me that trombone, I'll, I can play it better than you. Paul Barnes was very knowledgeable, and he made several important co uh, contributions to the history of jazz that are not very well known in terms of some of the things that he said and documented. In history, Jelly Roll Morton is often credited as being the first great composer in jazz. It is widely thought that his position as one of the earliest jazz pianists 
and his dedication to an archaic New Orleans brand of jazz made his music seem corny and dated within a few years and were the causes of the demise of his career. It's all too safe and easy to pigeonhole Morton's colorful life and music by merely viewing him as a romanticized tragic hero whose epic adventures and travels often seem more like fantasy than reality. It's all too easy to view him as a flawed personality, confused by his Creole ancestry and consumed by bitterness and self-hatred. It's too easy for some to see his music merely as a primitive step in the development of America's best known indigenous art form. The year 2000, the beginning of a new century, is a good time for us to re-examine Morton's music, life, and importance. Much of Morton's early life is well documented in the autobiographical book, Mr. Jelly Roll. Morton was born in New Orleans, probably in 1890, but as many of you know, uh, the date is very controversial. Morton always claimed, uh, most of the time anyway, he claimed that he was born in 1885. At any rate, he began studying piano at age 10, and around 19 or 2, he began playing solo piano in the brothels of Storyville. Morton claims to have invented jazz that year in a popular ball called the Frenchman's, which was at the corner of Bienville and Villery. After being ejected from home when his grandmother found out about his nocturnal musical activities, Morton went to Biloxi, Mississippi, and from there began a nomadic existence, which took him around the Gulf Coast, then to Chicago, Texas, and California, where he finally settled more or less for a few years before migrating to Chicago in 1923. During those years, Morton further developed his piano skills and challenged pianists in most places that he met. And by his own account, he won, always won. The adventurous Jelly Roll Morton also tried his hand at several other professions, including being a pimp, a gambler, a pool hustler, a nightclub manager, and a vaudeville comedian. It was during his Chicago years, between 1923 and 28, that Morton had his most successful period. There he began to record, publish his compositions, and become a very successful and popular band leader. He was rolling in clothes, cars, money, and diamonds. In 1923, Morton made several solo recordings of some of his most famous compositions, including Kansas City Stomp, Wolverine Blues, The Pearls, New Orleans Joys, and his best-known piece, King Porter Stomp.
During that period, Martin also became part of the first known interracial record when he teamed up with the white New Orleans Rhythm Kings. From that session, here's a little bit of Millenberg Joys. Between 1926 and 29, Morton put down his most influential body of work with his classic Red Hot Peppers recordings. The traditional New Orleans type setup of trombone, cornet or trumpet, clarinet, banjo, bass, piano and drums that Morton used became the vehicle that demonstrated that a true musical genius was in existence. These classic recordings bring New Orleans-style jazz to its highest artistic level in terms of variety of material, texture, uh, complexity of arrangements, ensemble playing, and solo exhibitions. This is where Martin pointed the way for future swing-era musicians by proving that improvisation and written arrangements could be combined without losing a feel of jazz swing. Among the Red Hot Pepper recording classics are Black Bottom Stomp,
Monroe Martin experimented with colors and textures of individual instruments and sounds. He used a series of devices such as breaks, riffs, tempo variation, special introductions and endings, and Latin rhythms, etc., to give his music a color, texture, and feel that were in advance of other band recordings of the day. One device that Morton used, which became popular in later swing bands, was the clarinet trio, as heard in such classics as Sidewalk Blues and Dead Man Blues. Morton used ragtime, popular music, marches, and the blues as common sources for his creations. On Dead Man Blues, he created an elaborate melodic line, which he wrote in harmony for three clarinets. I'm going to demonstrate what the line sounds like the lead line on that, something like this. Now, to hear, what it, oh no, no. to hear what it really sounds like in three-part harmony, this was in advance of anything else that was done at the time. Here is that section with three clarinets. In 1928, Martin moved to New York, which was rapidly becoming the main center for jazz in the entertainment industry. Though he continued to record and tour in the area, New York never fully accepted Jelly, and his fortunes began to decline. Among the recordings that he made uh, during that time, he made some of the earliest jazz uh, small band recordings. And uh, again, these were works of genius. He wrote out intricate lines and also combined improvisation uh, for musicians such as Omer Simeon and Johnny Dodds uh, and several others. One of the lines that he wrote, and it's a very, very uh, difficult piece, uh, is on a song called Shreveport Stomp. You see, many times Jelly originally composed things on the piano, and then he would adjust them for band playing. So uh, a song like uh, Shreveport Stomp, the clarinet part really is more pianistic than it is for clarinet, than it is easy for clarinet. 
but uh, he had one of the great clarinetists in jazz with him, Omer Simeon. Uh, I have a few exhibit items there, and one of the things I have uh, for exhibit when we finish is one of Omer Simeon's clarinets. But at any rate, I'm going to demonstrate for you one of those uh, lines on Shreveport Stomp. The way Jelly wrote it, and the way Omer Simeon had to play it on the recording, it begins on fork, what are called forked fingerings, which are very difficult to do on clarinet. So the very opening phrase is tough from the beginning. It starts out on a high note uh, on a forked fingering. And after that, as if that's not bad enough, it repeats a few times, and then it gets to a very complex trio section, which is really hard to play. And I'll, let's, I'll see if I can give you an idea of what it sounds like. Something like that. But Jelly Roll was never at a loss for new ideas and new devices. He experimented with many different kinds of, of sounds and also many different textures in the music. <clears throat> he spent most of his days in New York outside of Harlem's Rhythm Club, preaching to musicians about organizing, bragging about how great he was, and lamenting about how he couldn't find musicians who were willing to rehearse his music. One of the musicians that knew him very well at that time was uh, the late, great Danny Barker. And Danny Barker used to always talk about his experiences with Jelly. And uh, he used to play with him uh, for, for dances uh, that would be in the New York area at the time. And he was saying that Jelly Roll Morton's classic music, his classic pieces like Black Bottom Stump and, and The Chant and Dead Man Blues and things like that, they weren't playing those. They were just having like a... Uh, a jam session approach to playing because that music was really very difficult and the musicians didn't want to spend the time that it takes rehearsing it, okay? So uh, he said when he played with Jelly Roll, they just played standard tunes that everybody knew. And when Martin played any of his special numbers, he usually did it as, as a piano solo. The onset of the Great Depression marked the beginning of Martin's decline. In 1930, he lost his recording contract and dance jobs became scarce. By now, Morton's ensemble style of New Orleans jazz was considered out of vogue, and he began, to, began a long, unsuccessful campaign to collect royalties that were due him. A recent three-part series on Morton published by the Chicago Tribune in December of last year presents the view that Morton's claims to having been cheated out of enormous sums of money by his publisher, Walter Melrose, his claims to having been betrayed by large record companies and ignored by organizations which are supposed to assist artists in collecting royalties and residuals, are not only uh, accurate, but that the actions of these groups were criminal. To add further to his frustrations, Morton was given little credit or compensation for elements of his style and compositions used by leading swing band leaders like Fletcher Henderson, Benny Goodman, and Duke Ellington. 
Though he verbally discredited and dismissed Morton's significance as much as he could, the, the truth is that Duke Ellington based much of his early compositions and band style on the music of Jelly Roll Morton. One of several examples is from 1929, Ellington's recording of a song called Dicty Glide, which heavily borrows from Morton's 1927 recording of The Pearls. First, we'll hear a little bit of Morton's, one section of Morton's Pearls, and then we'll hear Ellington's Dicty Glide from two years later. <laughs> Ellington said that uh, there were high school teachers in Washington that could play better than Morton. He said his compositions were, weren't worth anything. Morton's King Porter Stomp was one of the most popular band numbers of the 1930s and was actually a hit for Fletcher Henderson in 1933 and for Benny Goodman in 1935. Let's listen to a little bit of the hit recordings of King Porter Stomp. First Fletcher Henderson's. and Benny Goodman's. In 1935, 
The broke and frustrated Morton left New York and moved to Washington, D.C., where he had a hand in running a small bar in which he played solo piano. By now, his health began to fail, and he continued an obsessive but fruitless battle to collect on the money that was owed him. A bright spot of those years in Washington was his 1938 solo recordings made by Alan Lomax for the Library of Congress. As contemporary trumpet virtuoso Wynton Marcellus points out, these recordings tell more about the history of jazz than any other single document. The many hours that Morton spent telling his life story and that of New Orleans jazz were filled with his incredible gift for storytelling, singing, and piano playing. Morton's piano playing on the Library of Congress recordings was not that of an out-of-date, corny, limited ragtimer or of a broken-down, ill old man. In 1938, Morton demonstrated a style that, if anything, was in advance of anything that he previously recorded. His playing was alive with brilliant, dazzling technique, new creative ideas, and a swinging, optimistic joy. All of these can be heard in the Library of Congress remake of the Morton classic, Mr. Jelly Lord. Congress recordings are important because they outline the history of New Orleans jazz, who was playing in New Orleans, what the functions were, who some of Morton's roots and influences were. Jelly gives us important insights into his compositions, his conception of form, how he transformed ragtime into jazz, his musical influences, his use of Latin rhythms, 
his band style of piano playing, which at different times sounded like all the different instruments, his capacity for vocal and scat singing. He claimed, although Louis Armstrong popularized scat singing, of course, he claimed to have invented that too. <laughs> In 1938, Morton returns to New York for a last-ditch effort at achieving success and then collecting what he could of an estimated millions that he should have been due from his uh, recordings, sheet music sales, and the frequent performance of his songs by other artists. Morton once wrote that he was due a sum of $3 million. That's what he said. Morton was able to convince RCA Victor to record him with a band in 1939 and 40. While these recordings are, some of them remain classic and they include uh, some great individual uh, players like Sidney Bechet and others, they don't quite measure up to the uh, original compositions and intricate scores combined with improvisation. Most of these were uh, head sessions. In other words, uh, they were done by musicians just improvising together which is fine, but it's not quite as, as intricate and beautiful as the earlier Red Hot Peppers recordings. Almost completely broke and surviving off of very small checks that he received from ASCAP. ASCAP is the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers that uh, helps uh, musicians and artists, composers to uh, collect royalties from their songs, I hope. We're going to find out about that soon. <laughs> the increasingly ill Morton hitched his old Lincoln and Cadillac. He used to love fancy cars and do things that were very flashy. So he had a, a Lincoln and a Cadillac. One time he said his cars were so long that when he was in New York, he had to drive down, to the, down the street to turn it around. That's how long it was. He hitched his old Lincoln and Cadillac together and by himself made a long, dangerous journey to Los Angeles, where a few months later, he died in July of 1941. It seems that that would have been the end for Jelly Roll Morton, gone and forgotten, his music remaining as an obscure relic of the past. A 1940s and 50s revival of interest in old-style New Orleans jazz that resulted in recordings and tours for older New Orleans musicians, such as George Lewis and Bunk Johnson, and the era that led to today's manifestation of traditional jazz rarely used Jelly Roll Morton music. Only a couple of the more simple Jelly Roll songs are traditional jazz standards today, and even those are usually played in a simplified form and in the easiest keys. Simply put, Jelly Roll Morton's music is very difficult. It's a hard music to play. I had the uh, experience, the pleasure, of playing uh, some Jelly Roll Morton music starting about 10 years ago, uh, taking on some of the, the Red Hot Peppers material and being able to do so in the company of some of the most famous hotshots of jazz today, uh, young hotshots of jazz today in New York. And... Uh, they all thought that this would be some kind of simple music to play, and they all found out very different when it came time for rehearsals. Uh, they all had difficulty trying to play Jelly's music, and through that, they gained a lot of respect for him. 
After the swing era, almost all traces of Martin music had disappeared in later jazz styles. As the roles of instruments changed, few jazz pianists dealt significantly, significantly with, a two, with a full two-handed uh, rhythmic piano style, such as the one employed by Morton. Surprisingly, however, Morton's influence can be heard in other places. For example, Morton had a song called New Orleans Blues. And let's see if that song reminds us of anything. Does that remind anyone of anything? It reminds us of Boogie Woogie because it has the same structure. And a lot of Boogie Woogie blues structure was music that early rhythm and blues and rock and roll was taken from. And in fact, the breaks there are heard in two rhythm and blues songs, one by Paul Gayton and one by Ray Charles. Surprisingly, Morton's influence can also be heard in the music of people like Professor Longhair. See if we can hear a similarity in Longhair's Hey Now Baby.
Okay, can we hear similar rhythm and feel? Over the years, there were a few revival bands, mainly European, who sometimes played Morton's music. There have also been a few pianists like Bob Green and Butch Thompson who played the old rags and stomps. During the 1970s, Green organized a band and toured with his concert presentation that was entitled The World of Jelly Roll Morton, which toured in North and South America. Green even had successful performances of Morton's music at Lincoln Center. While the noble efforts of the few Morton devotees are admirable, it seems that since the 1990s, about 100 years after Morton's birth, his presence is probably more visible now than ever before. For one thing, all of his recordings have gone through several CD reissues and are still available. I have quite a few uh, CD reissues there. All of, uh, much of Morton's uh, material is available. Library of Congress recordings, piano solos, piano rolls, Red Hot Pepper recordings, and others. His music has been used in the background of numerous popular films, TV shows, and documentaries. A lot of times we've heard Morton's music and we didn't even know it. Morton has been the subject of two successful musicals. One of them was Jelly's Last Jam, which unfortunately reduced Morton's life and music into sarcastic, satirical caricature. Ironically, this long-running Broadway play did more to spread Morton's name to a larger segment of the public than anything. New Orleans-born writer and actor Vernel Bonaris had a one-man musical called Jelly Roll, which, though successful, played to a much smaller audience than Jelly's Last Jam. Bonaris's New Orleans voice, sense of humor, and Crescent City personality more accurately transformed the true art and spirit of Morton to the stage. Morton's music has come to the forefront in serious presentation numerous times since the 1990s, during and since the 90s. During the early 90s, there were several concert presentations of Morton's most important works at Lincoln Center and the Smithsonian Institution, and even at the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Jazz at Lincoln Center's artistic director, trumpet virtuoso Winston Marcellus, has done much to keep Morton's music alive in worldwide concert tours, on public television performances, and on <clears throat> recordings like last year's Mr. Jelly Lord, which I think we have a copy of up there. In 1998, several newly discovered Morton pieces were performed for the first time. These later Morton compositions demonstrate that unlike popular belief, Morton was capable of making artistically valid, the artistically valid transition into big band or swing music, and even beyond. One of the later pieces named Ganjam combines unusual melodies, harmonies, and scales in a haunting piece reminiscent of the compositions of Charles Mingus or the late explorations of Duke Ellington. Perhaps the crowning jewel in the renewed interest in Jelly Roll Morton is the long-awaited publication of Bill Russell's 720-page work 
on Martin, Old Mr. Jelly, which is described as a Jelly Roll Morton scrapbook. That's some scrapbook. It weighs about 50 pounds. I use it to exercise with. The book is full of new information on Jelly Roll's life, including a section by Roy Carew, who gives an account of New Orleans during the early days of jazz, and who was one of Morton's longtime friends and business associates. There are also in, in Oh, Mr. Jelly, dozens of letters of correspondence between Morton and Carew. These letters show Morton not to be the braggadocious, uh, arrogant personality of younger days, but a desperate man, an obsessed man, and in some ways a broken man. So the idea of his character, he changed. Uh, he was humbled by his fate in the music business. There are also interviews with over 80 people who knew Jelly Roll Morton and had experiences with him, sometimes people that you would not, uh, would not think of. Uh, for example, the modern jazz pianist Billy Taylor talks about uh, when he was a student in Washington, he saw Jelly playing at the uh, club, and they went in one night, uh, several piano students, to uh, have some fun and laugh at this old man who was playing piano. And, uh, of course, Jelly Roll... At some point, somebody told Jelly who these guys were, and in his true style, Jelly looked out at them and said, you punks can't play this. <laughs> Billy Taylor, when he got over that, realized that Morton was right, that, that he was playing something that he couldn't play and none of the other guys could play either. So they sat in awe for the next three hours, and Morton changed their concepts about early jazz and about uh, what is old and what isn't because Martin demonstrated a type of left-hand technique that had bypassed the modern jazz pianist. <clears throat> there are also interviews with numerous people like Paul Morns, Louis Armstrong, and others that are very entertaining. Danny Barker, people that knew Morton at different periods of his life, his, his two sisters, and so on. There are also copies of Morton's handwritten orchestrations so I would just like to conclude by saying that Jelly Roll Morton is one of the great and most influential figures, not only in jazz, but in 20th century music. His music, as Billy Taylor said, has value today because great music is not tied down to any time period. Great music is great music. As Bob Green once said, there's plenty of room in Jelly Roll Morton's music for creativity. He dedicated himself to exploring Jelly's music. Danny Barker said of Bob Green one time, see that Bob Green, he's addicted to Jelly Roll. And if you know Bob Green, you know that he is. A guy named, uh, well-known New Orleans bass player, Frank Fields, uh, played in some of Bob Green's uh, bands during the 70s, and he, he told me what it was like in his house. He said, man, you go through the door and there's a, a life-sized cardboard statue of Jelly Roll Morton. He said, I thought that was him. <laughs> the vision of Jelly Roll Morton in the year 2000 and the coming years needs to be reassessed. As Bill Russell said, or as was said in the preface to Bill Russell's book, through his compositions and influence, Morton is the greatest figure in New Orleans music. 
Roll, Jelly, Roll. Now, we have uh, a few items for exhibit here, some copies of the original Melrose publications, a few uh, other attempts at transcriptions of Jelly's music, some CD reissues, the Bill Russell book, Old Mr. Jelly, and then we have uh, uh, several books on Morton. Uh, the most well-known book, of course, is Alan Lomax's Mr. Jelly Roll. Uh, there was a, a shorter book written by Martin Williams. Jelly Roll's name is in the title of two other books which have chapters on him. Uh, there's a very good and interesting discography uh, called Mr. Jelly Lord. And uh, finally, we have uh, two clarinets up there. Both of those belong to uh, musicians that played and recorded with Martin. The small one is an E-flat clarinet that belonged to Paul Barnes, who we quoted early on. And the larger one uh, belonged to Omer Simeon, who uh, did much of the recording, the Red Hot Peppers recordings with Morton and was his, was his favorite clarinetist. So, uh, oh, I was going to ask if anyone had any questions. How did I come to have the clarinets? It's a secret. <laughs> In the case of Paul Barnes, uh, I got to hear him uh, when I was just starting out playing music. He was playing with Kid Thomas Valentine's band. And I got to see him a few times and talk to him and uh, got to know his, his, some of the musicians he played with. Uh, he had retired in the last few years. Uh, but I got to know and eventually play with some of the musicians that he played with. And then I got to meet and know his wife. So uh, a while after he died, uh, I gave her a call and asked her uh, if she had any instruments of, of Mr. Barnes that she was interested in selling. So and that's what happened. And the, uh, the Omer Simeon clarinet uh, came upon me quite by accident. Uh, I guess prophetically, it was during one of those times I was up in New York, um, uh, to do Jelly Roll Morton music. And uh, uh, I went into a music store and saw this old Albert system clarinet. Uh, there are two main different types of clarinets, the Bayham system and the Albert system. Um, they might look all alike to you. People think all clarinets look alike. That's not true. Okay, the Albert system uh, is considered the older system. It's much more difficult uh, to play because you have to employ more forked fingerings. But many people believe that the Albert system has a more beautiful sound than the Bayham system. And I'm one of those that believes that. All of the early jazz greats played the Albert system clarinets. Okay? So I saw this in the music store in New York one day. Uh, I wanted to get my hands on a few Albert system clarinets. That was the main thing. And I was lucky enough to uh, uh, see this one uh, for sale, and I found out who it was for, who it had belonged to at one time, and so I bought it, and that was it. And uh, this actually is also uh, the clarinet that you see on the Holiday Inn, uh, upside down, painted. <laughs> yeah, That's, this is the one. Uh, someone else has a question, comment? Did Jelly Roll and Louis Armstrong ever play together at all? Certainly not on record. Uh, there is a story in the Bill Russell book about 
Jelly going to Louis Armstrong's house uh, and in Chicago and Lil Hardin, uh, the pianist with King Oliver, who became uh, Armstrong's wife, uh, was playing piano. And he, of course, he told her, get up from there and let me show you how to play that thing. <laughs> and he taught her a lesson. She said she was used to carving up other people. I don't know if they actually ever really played together. Does anyone know? They wrote a tune together there, yeah, there is some controversy over them writing Wild Man Blues. Uh, one story says that, that uh, Morton's publisher added uh, Armstrong's name to Wild Man Blues because he thought it would sell more copies of the sheet music. Who knows? <laughs> is this a setup? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, Jelly Roll, you know, Jelly, Jelly Roll Morton toured on the vaudeville circuit, and uh, supposedly he said he gave himself the name uh, during a, a vaudeville skit where uh, several people were talking about their this and that and the other, and he says, well, I'm something like the Jelly Roll something, but a lot of people think that refers to uh, his prowess in other areas. Let's put it like that. <laughs> How are royalties handled now? Well, I don't get any of them. I wish I did. Since his death, Morton's music has made several million dollars. And royalties are divided up uh, three ways. Uh, some of the royalties go to uh, the, the descendants of, of Melrose, the uh, publisher. Some of the royalties go to uh, record companies the main record company that owns Morton's catalog is really owned by Paul McCartney. And uh, so his company gets some of the royalties. And finally, when Morton died, uh, there was a will, but that's a rather confusing situation in a way. Uh, there was a will, and uh, Morton's um, companion at the time of his death uh, received, uh, she was the beneficiary of most of, of, most of the royalties. Uh, but at the same time, she was also married, and uh, she died. Her husband uh, inherited her share. Then they, he died. They had two kids. The two kids died in the 90s, and they have 11 children and grandchildren that receive the, the royalties now, which is kind of strange because Morton's other wife, companion, on the East Coast, he would have wanted her to have some of the money, but she ended up not getting anything. Mabel Bertrand. So that's kind of how it goes. Do you know what happened to Mr. Carew? Um, in the book, his last letters come back on accident because Jelly Roll was dying out in Los Angeles. She couldn't find him. Right. And after that, Carew disappears. And he, he was the one who was supposed to write the book in the first place. Right, right. And some of Roy Carew's uh, attempts or, or, or things that would have been in the book uh, appear in the Bill Russell book. Uh, of course, eventually Roy Carew died, but he did at one time, uh, what happened after Jelly Roll Morton died, there were several uh, people that surfaced to, to try to uh, get some of the royalties. And uh, Roy Carew was involved in a music publishing business with Jelly, uh, Temple Music. 
And uh, he was one of the people that tried to kind of get some of the royalties at, after Morton's death. But that's really the, the last I heard of him. I'm not sure. I'd like to answer that. I think that's a, one of the worst things in the those three articles from the Chicago Tribune. I commend what they did, showing what happened to Gillis. What he said about Roy Crew, I think it's totally false. He had no basis of that. Roy Crew was a very good friend of Gillis. If he were interested in getting any money from Gillis, he was not fooled with him during that time. It was, mm -hmm. it was quite apparent that Gillis was on his way out. His career was over. Yet Roy supported him, not only just in he gave him money and followed him to the end. And uh, the articles also suggested that uh, Roy Carew was selling all his the composition and the letters. Mm -hmm. That was totally false, too. I have evidence that written by my brother, Bill, where he points out he was visiting Mrs. Carew, and he was looking those, and he noticed a, a trash and over in the kitchen. He asked her what that was. He said, all that stuff I'm going to throw out. She was going to throw out all his correspondence. He said, you mind if I go through that? So he went and he found two or three letters of jelly. And he, he said, well, please do not destroy this material. It's, it's fabulous. He said, he bought some of it. And that's how it came to light. And it was suggested in those articles that Roy Carew was trying to capitalize on the lyrics that he wrote where you reverse his name. It's tragic, I think, that they gave Roy Carew a bad image in that. Do you, do you know what uh, eventually happened to Roy Carew? What happened to him? Yeah. No, other than, well, no, I, I don't know what, how, how he died. I think actually he owned the copyrights to many of the Rose pieces the later, yeah, some of the later compositions. That's why I was wondering what happened to Roger I think, I don't think he ended up getting, I think the later compositions that Carew had a copyright on didn't have uh, much monetary value, and I don't think he got too much out of them. Um, you know, it's, it's the whole business of copyrights, and Jelly Roll Morton's case and situation presents an interesting one uh, that is a problem for many artists, the idea of uh, publisher's rights, uh, author's rights, lyricist rights, and all when you work for uh, a recording company. That's something that had plagued a lot of musicians and still does to this day because it's very complicated. And certainly uh, having access to contracts and understanding the language in contracts, uh, you know, it's difficult for, for musicians today. Uh, it's, it's not uncommon for a musician, for example, to get a 50- uh, or 60-page contract in a language that he just doesn't understand. So you have to go through lawyers or whatever, but at the time, Jelly Roll, you know, the business was growing, uh, the music industry, Jelly Roll didn't really have... Uh, knowledge or access to, to a lot of the resources that we had today. Uh, ASCAP, seemingly ASCAP, uh, rejected his uh, office to uh, become a member for a long time, and when they did accept him, they put him in a low category, so 
the amount when he finally did start getting royalty checks, the amount was very small. That's a very, very complex and complicated situation. <clears throat> uh, someone else? The, uh, you mentioned the, uh, that the, the <coughs> role continues in the piano tradition in New Orleans. Are they conscious of it, or is it just a tradition that carried on uh, uh, sort of unconscious? Well, I think like in the case of Louis Armstrong, a lot of people play uh, things that came from Louis Armstrong and don't realize that they came from Louis Armstrong. I think a lot of those things were, were passed down in the culture. Uh, I don't know how much of it is conscious. You know, um, I think there are some people that... Uh, uh, have mentioned Jelly Roll as a, as a possible influence. Um, there were a lot of comparisons made early on, or I should say later on, between James Booker, for example, and Jelly Roll. But I don't know how much Booker thought, you know, that he was influenced by Jelly, but he certainly was. And you heard other people too, Professor Longhead, Toots Washington, some of the some of the R and B players. Okay, so we have a. Uh, we have a lot of uh, special people in the audience tonight. I wish I could uh, uh, mention everyone, but uh, uh, I'd just like to, to uh, let you see uh, a couple of the people that came out. Uh, uh, I mentioned that in the 1940s and 50s, there was a revival of early New Orleans jazz. And uh, one of the people that had an awful lot to do with that was Bill Russell. Uh, because he was among the first to record some of the older musicians uh, and start a renewed interest in New Orleans jazz that hasn't waned yet in some parts of the world. Uh, because of what Bill Russell started, you can go to Japan today and hear kids of all ages, people of all ages, playing New Orleans jazz music. You can go all over Scandinavia in other parts of Europe and hear people playing New Orleans jazz music. And uh, one of the early heroes of that movement uh, was the great trumpet player uh, who was also quite a character himself, the great Bunk Johnson. And uh, we, I look out here and I see Bunk Johnson's daughter in the audience, so I'd like for her to stand up, Mrs. Emily Evans. You know, New Orleans is a really strange place. It's a very, very much a family tradition. And uh, my mother and Mrs. Evans had been friends for years and years and years. I went to school with her kids, and I didn't know anything about Bunk Johnson being her father for many years, many years. You know, one of the most special aspects of the New Orleans brass, uh, of New Orleans jazz and New Orleans music is the New Orleans brass band tradition. And... Uh, Surprisingly, while the music of Armstrong, Jelly Roll Morton, and others was being recorded in the 1920s, uh, the brass band music of New Orleans was not recorded at all, really, until a few early attempts in the 40s, but in the 1950s. And the guy that recorded the first regularly organized New Orleans brass band, the Eureka Brass Band, is here too, Dr. Alden Ashford. And 
And I'm always happy to see one of my, one of my mentors here. Uh, and this guy is a legend in, in New Orleans music and a whole lot of other things. He wouldn't want me to tell you all he's done, so I won't. Uh, but I'd just like to acknowledge him, Harold Baptiste. And there are many other special people in the audience, uh, and I'd like to thank you all for coming. If uh, anyone has any other questions or comments. Thank you. So uh, two things, if, if anyone is uh, interested, we have those items up here uh, that you can take a look at. Uh, and in case you're interested, I have not seen my new recording yet. It's still in boxes, but if anyone's interested, I do have some.